Hi there. Welcome to another Dishcast. It's just after the elections. We're all kind of absorbing the fact that the red wave turned into the red wedding. And in the words of Ben Shapiro, actually, who was among the many conservative commentators who surprisingly really didn't really have much to say in defense of Donald J. Trump this week. The other guy I watched, this complete psycho, which my guest today may well know of, a man called Kurt Schlichter. He's my go-to man every time Trump's like, because I, I figured if, the, if he loses Kurt Schlichter, it's over. And sure enough, he's almost lost Kurt Schlichter this week, which is really quite a, a turnaround. A couple of program notes, I just want to thank you for listening. I, I don't do that often enough. A recent guest just wrote me another email, and I get this from almost every guest I have on here to say, you have, I had no idea all my friends listened to your podcast, which is the sweetest compliment. And I want to thank you and thank you for supporting The Dish and hope you can subscribe at The Weekly Dish. And what better time to talk about the Republican Party, its future, its past, its recent past in particular, than Robert Draper, who is in the studio today. It's rare that we get to actually have one in the studio. And he is, if you didn't know, a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine, a contributing writer for National Geographic. He's the author of several books, including Dead Certain, the Presidency of George W. Bush. And his latest, which came out just before the election, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Not how, <laughs> not if, when. And that was in, I think, in the aftermath of January 6th is when you, because, uh, 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 welcome, Rob. Thank you for having <laughs> me. That was kind of one of the interesting things that you said, that the January the 6th gave the Republican Party a clear opportunity to say, nope. Now, this is, this is gone. My old teacher at Harvard, Harvey Mansfield, Harvey C. minus mm -hmm. Mansfield, an arch Republican in so many ways and voted for Trump in 2016, said he, he would never, didn't vote for him this time. And the, the, the one thing that has ended any association with this man was the, first, the 6th of January. Well, is this happening? Is it actually a real moment in which maybe the moderate forces are finally starting to gain traction? Well, since, Andrew, you began by referencing January the 6th, which I witnessed at harrowing proximity being inside the Capitol and then outside watching people from the east side push in, given that you, you referenced that we should know that we've been to this rodeo before, because that was certainly a moment at which the Republican Party, as you were saying, could have divested itself from Trump and, by extension, from the corrosive elements uh, within the party that gave rise to the insurrection. They chose not to do that. They doubled down on it. The, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party really exerted a stranglehold over it. And so now here we are just after the midterms asking ourselves that same question. And I guess the answer to it is that, at least from my vantage point, it's not likely to happen just yet. I mean, that's, we, we do see yet again the Republican Party losing under the influence of Donald Trump. But he, the party lost in 2018. The party lost everything else in 2020. And a Politico morning consult poll that came out this morning indicates 
that Trump lead DeSantis 47 to 34. Now, that's still a hell of a lot better for any Republican challenger than we've seen in the last year and a half. But it's also before Trump has given his speech, which will take place tonight and, and Wednesday night. And, and so right now he is, he's, I mean, there, there's a reason why Kevin McCarthy has not said anything along the lines of, let's move on from Donald Trump. It's not because he loves the guy. It's because he's afraid of him. He's afraid more specifically of the MAGA base that, that Trump represents and that Trump is the leader of. And McCarthy is in turn afraid of the proximate warriors of the MAGA movement like Marjorie Taylor Greene, which we can get into since she's a principal will. character in my book. She but, is. Yeah. And what a character. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> one thing you can't say about this bunch is that they're not colorful. No. I mean, no, Lord. No, are they colorful? But I'm. That's that's a that's an early take. I want to take you right back to where you were born and grew up. Uh, you're a Texan. Sure, sure, I am. Yeah, I try not to hold it against me. I'm, I love I was, Texans. <laughs> yeah, I love Texans. I, I was I was born in Houston. Grew up in a fairly conservative environment, and and at a time also, Andrew, when. There wasn't a dis much of a distinction between Democrats and Republicans. Those who called themselves Democrats called themselves that largely by custom. My grandfather was the Watergate special prosecutor, and his his work in that capacity led to Nixon's re resignation. And yet he also was the head of Democrats for Nixon in 1972, and then the head of Democrats for Reagan in 1980. So, it's, so there were conservatives in my community throughout. And I think that's largely why it came to be that when I decided upon journalism for a living, I got into the slipstream of conservative politics because, frankly, they're as you know, there's a dearth of journalists who really understand folks in the conservative spectrum. So, so yeah, that's where I ended up. Yeah, and it turns out to be an incredibly interesting story in our lifetimes yeah. of what happened to conservatism both here and in my own homeland, which I've also followed, which has also been, let us say, not uncolorful no. <laughs> in the last few years. God, no. And these parties that were associated generally in the past with all the rock-ribbed people, repressed, restraint, hard-ass people uh, uh, suddenly became, and sober people suddenly became this uh, kind of clown car festival. Uh, so when did you choose journalism? Yeah, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I say always, like from second grade. It, it uh, My English teachers had singled me out, had me read these these horrible little stories in front of the classroom that were derivative of the Hardy Boys. And 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 I think that, you know, it was probably that approbation on top of the fact that, you know, the the, the empty piece of note paper became my friend and and the middle of middle of three boys, not entirely an oddball, but not an easy fit in, you know, the jockocracy of adolescence and and this was in the 70s? Yeah, it's in the 70s. And, and so I attended the University of Texas at Austin. I'd always wanted to be a novelist, but I couldn't really figure out the career path. I wrote my first novel straight out of high school. Again, thank God it was never published. And and that was really Holden Caulfield-esque, you know, semi-autobiographical. We all deserve to write a bad book like that. It's, That's every, it's a rite of passage for every great Absolutely. Writer, thank God it didn't get published. You know, so <laughs> you it's a- to burn it. Right, right. Yeah. I actually still have it, but no one else is seeing it. I can't bring myself <laughs> to burn it, and I certainly can't bring myself to let anyone see it. But I then over time, I be, 
began to, there was a magazine that had just started up in the mid 70s called Texas Monthly that where the kind of fictional techniques were being used in narrative journalism, as we saw elsewhere in Esquire and Rolling Stone. And, and that became kind of my proximate influence. And, and after writing a book about the history of Rolling Stone magazine as this nobody freelancer, I was just lucky that Doubleday published it and the book did well. Texas Monthly hired me, and I was there for several years as a writer, mainly doing non-political stories. Then GQ hired me away from them in 97. Bush at that time was governor of Texas, was thinking of running for president. I began to, to sort of hang out with Bush, did a very lengthy, I think, seminal story about who Bush was. When at the beginning of, or, or at the tail end of his first term, I sat around and saw all these other biographies coming out about Bush, and I just, I, I didn't think they were very good. I don't, I didn't think that the authors knew much about him the way I did, and so I undertook to just pronounce myself as biographer. I did a book uh, called Dead Certain, uh, the, the, in which I spent a great deal of time with Bush and all the others in, in his administration. Right around that time, I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2005, and that's that's really cemented my, my positioning and uh, writing about Republican politics and kept me in D.C. Hmm. Texas Monthly in the 70s and 80s. It's kind of a legendary place. Completely. And it's and, it, you know, there's the the people from Nick Lemon and Joe Nocera and and uh, still, you know, Mimi Swartz, Gary Cartwright. It's it really is a, a who's who you could you could staff two or three magazines just with the writers who've come through there over the last several years. And I and I was so lucky because I really didn't know much about how to write magazine stories, but to be in that constellation of great writers, you just pick up so much by osmosis. And, and, uh, and I'm a pretty competitive guy, too. I didn't want to be like the crappiest writer there. So I worked my ass off. And, and uh, when you say work your ass off to become a better writer, what does that actually mean? Yeah, it, it means, among other things, studying the works of, of writers you admire, trying to deconstruct what it is that they do well, while at the same time trying to find your own voice being tenacious as a reporter, always digging, you know, into a deeper layer and 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 learning from every story that you do, you know, interacting with with editors and, you know, recognize. I mean, to this day, I still have real shortcomings as a journalist. There's some things that come naturally to some journalists, like I'm not good at describing what's in this room. You know, I'll, I'll remember everything about our conversation and I'll forget everything about what the wallpaper is or isn't. And, and uh, so physical descriptions are something I really have to work at. But to know those things, to know your shortcomings, your your frailties. And I think more than anything else, I mean, I developed along the way enough confidence in my abilities that I was willing to admit my own ignorance, you know, as a writer, as a reporter, and to ask, dare to ask the dumb question, you know, dare to, to be curious rather than to put on ears and pretend that I know something that I do not. Yeah. And that also went for much of Texas Monthly. I mean, it, it, who was the genius behind that? Who was the, what was the animating vision? That yeah, the, that the, uh, there was a publisher named Mike Levy who had the idea to basically do what in Texas what had happened in New York. He believed with New York Magazine, he believed that Texas was a state with all of these unified interests, as as diverse as the state was in terms of geography, and and it was a smart bet. And he hired. Um, the first two editors-in-chief, Bill Broyles and then Greg Curtis, were absolutely brilliant 
editors. And then the, the follow-up editor-in-chief, Evan Smith, who worked very briefly at New Republic when you were there, I think advanced the ball too, as did Jake Silverstein, who is now the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Magazine. So they, they've just had a great group of editors who we're always conscious of the need for the magazine to be a writer's magazine. It has been, it's one of the very few magazines left in America that depends on paid staff writers as opposed to freelance writers. You're hard pressed to find more than two or three publications. The New Yorker would be one, and I'm not sure who else anymore. I mean, almost all the other Condé Nast magazines have divested themselves of staff writers. And I know, but that was, as, as you say about Texas Monthly, it was actually being around them, other yeah. writers, yeah. that created the whole sense of a magazine. That's right. uh, otherwise, a magazine is just a few editors thinking up stuff, sure. uh, as opposed to that symbiosis of being in the same zone. Right. Just the the chatter, the the corridor talk, the the atmosphere, right. totally. the the socializing aspect of it. That's what made it used to be. In some ways, of magazines effectively disappeared. Yeah, well, they also, I mean, another thing happened along the way, and, and that's that long-form journalists disappeared. You know, I've, I've operated, you know, I've been doing this now for 30 years, and, and I've, I've tended to operate under the assumption every time I wake, you know, every morning I wake up that I should look over my shoulder to see who the young version of me is who's about to take my job. And though, you know, I still, I, I think I'm not lackadaisical, I've come to recognize, and I hear this from editors all the time, that now with you know the advent of 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 blogs and opinion and and you know the information age that there are there's less of a compulsion right storytelling wise you know that's and and you don't even have the mental space to look at a story yeah. and think about it then think about it again sure then re-report it then because these this takes time yeah i mean one of the things i think that's remarkable about your work is that you're able to talk to people who otherwise would not talk to a journalist, right. a liberal journalist. I mean, the, 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 your subject matter this time around is people who despise right. every aspect of the mainstream media. And I would say, in some respects, understandably so. There are, right. there are, there are huge blind spots that we have too, but you actually get them to talk to you. I mean, I, mean, I think of someone like, MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene, this 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 a completely bonkers person from a distance anyway. I would think uh, she'd be the last person to open up to a journalist. So that's that a that's an interesting case study, you know, Andrew, because so with Greene, that was far from an overnight proposition. The short version is it took me 13 months between the time I first requested an interview and the time I got one. Writing a book as opposed to being a daily newspaper writer afforded me you know, that length of time. And during that time, I, I continued to show up at her public events, would go to her district, would interview people around her, and was always, you know, respectful about it. I wasn't, you know, digging in trash cans, but I was, I, I worked hard too. And so- So it was I, also reminding her that you're also getting all sorts of other people's accounts. Yeah, I'm not going away. I'm not asking her permission. You're not, you're not just in the distance. You're absolutely right. in their face. Then I began to, to visit with her senior staff members. They were surprised that I knew all that I knew. I mean, they were both impressed and I think a little bit intimidated is not quite the right word, but thought, you know, this is a person who is definitely not waiting for our permission, you know, to to report on who our boss is. What so kind it, of stuff that you 
you revealed that they were a little shocked by. Yeah, I think so, especially the period of time when she came out of nowhere. I mean, it's very well known that she had this QAnon past and all that. And less well known is that just after she sort of quietly disavowed QAnon at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, she began to show up on Capitol Hill as a as a Facebook influencer, but also trying to meet with Republican senators to lobby them against things like gun safety legislation. And she couldn't get an audience with any of them. And she and she was going to like harass Democrats, but also to try to 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 try to persuade Democrat Republican electeds. And it was an utter failure. No one would let her in the door. And it really pissed her off. And she and she she began to tell people this that, you know, I screw it. How you know, I'm a taxpayer and they won't listen to me. I'm gonna run. And so when she ran these she she was self-funded because she's she's a millionaire. Her she and her husband own a construction business. And uh, she had a lot of money to throw around. A lot of Republican consultants then were eager to take her money, but she wouldn't listen to them and, and she they either quit or she would she would fire them. And and she really worked her ass off and and it was during the time of covid and so no one was campaigning it's you know because of social distancing you know protocols of course she didn't pay attention to that because she didn't believe in covid basically and and so she would go to these very conservative you know in this very conservative district that she moved to and went door to door and found that you know these were her people and they and you know, when I asked her, why didn't you take down all that QAnon stuff? You know, that's, I mean, why didn't you, you know, scrub your social media stuff? She said, I didn't think it would hurt me. In fact, I wondered if it might help me. And and so she saw that, you know, the, the underlying tenets of, of QAnon, which is President Trump is the greatest president of our lifetime. The Democrats are incorrigibly evil that they and the deep state and the media are all in cahoots to chip away bit by bit at uh, everything we hold dear to, to rob us of America, a kind of narrative that set the stage metaphorically for, you know, the 2020 election theft that never was, but it spoke to this sense of forfeiture that, that they, that these uh, constituents had. And and Green began to realize that. I mean, the QAnon thing, you know, that, as she told me, was, was something that lots of affluent people, lots of successful people glommed onto. But basically, even if you didn't think that there was a pedophile ring in the government, you still did believe that, that the, you know, the, the arch liberal media, that the socialist Democrats and the deep state were capable of anything and everything right this just what springs to mind is Phyllis Schlafly yeah in other words that what you see here is you know a Republican Party in the, I mean in the 20th century at least the, the, the does contain these extraordinary firebrands often women actually yeah Jenny Thomas absolutely but and but they also do the work yeah. you know they actually bloody right. do the work yeah. and Schlafly was testifying on the hill but Schlafly never got elected to congress of course but there is that that zeal now what is, what about her people yeah do we do we not what what surprised you most about her people well i mean i what surprised me the most about her people and by her people I'm not limiting it to the 14th district of Georgia because what I came to learn, and that's when I really began to take her seriously, someone who needed to be taken seriously was to realize she had a national following. You, you go you go to her office, both outside and inside the office, the walls are festooned with letters. And I mean, hundreds and hundreds of letters. And if you read them, they're from all over the US. They're not from her district. And they're all people, you know, you're, you're our fighter, you're our warrior, you're the one thing keeping us, you know, from socialism. And they're, 
so one thing that that you learned, you know, about her people and uh, you know a more problematic subset of that group or the people who came to Washington on January the sixth is that they are frequently non-college educated, you know, white working class who believe that America as they know it has been taken from them. They believe that at absolute minimum, the the mainstream media and and all elected officials, uh, you know, political professionals are heedless to them, dismissive of them, and maybe contemptuous of them as well. But let's just let's just take that. Yeah. They're not completely wrong, are yeah. they? Right. I not, mean, the, the thing about this is there are elements of it that are both true and understandable. For sure. And, and then and, they're and just laced in with these things that are completely right. insane. Yeah, the notion that, for example, you know, the, the manufacturing base you know, has gone through the floorboards in America and that so many Americans, you know, the sort of educated Americans would be of the view of, well, you know, you're just going to have to switch over to information technology and green energy. You know, you're just going to have to engage in worker retraining. That's all there is to it. I mean, it's, it's such a slap in the face to those people. And and it's, I mean, it, it is, again, at minimum, dismissive. And I think that, that I look, I, I'm defensive towards a lot of members of the media whom I know and who I think try to get things right. But, you know, they're as susceptible as any human being to being caught in a bubble. But, you know, on the subject of bubbles, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her constituents are in one as well. I mean, they part and parcel of, you know, a big part of their belief that 2020 was stolen was that they'd never met a Biden voter. I mean, Greene said to me a few weeks ago, she said, come on, Robert, you really think 81 million people for Joe voted for Joe Biden. And I said, yeah, I mean, is that the best you've got? That's that's your organizing you know, theory behind there being a vast conspiracy. But but because they've never met one, it just and, and meanwhile, saw these vast, you know, these massive Trump rallies. It just didn't seem possible. So, you know, so the fact that that owing to, you know, the big sword, owing to the democratization, so to speak, of of um, of information systems that people get the information that they want and then are surrounded in a bubble by people who share the same information. It's hard to break out of that. But yeah, it's it's true. I'm not allowed to say these two words together anymore, but it's true of both sides. <laughs> that, but in fact, obviously, what happened with the media in general is that it, it fractured beyond measure. Then it was democratized beyond measure to huge shifts, which it, when you're growing up in the 70s or me in the 70s, like there were three for us, there were three broadcast channels, right. and you fought over that text. That's right. When you don't actually have to fight over anything, yeah. you can just and you can succeed at it. Where the both sides, as much as just say like collapses, is when the is when tens of millions of people become deluded into believing that the election was yes, stolen, absolutely. which metastasizes into the January sixth in, insurrection. I mean, that's we we certainly you know the, look, you and I well remember people believing you know that Bush stole the election in two thousand. It didn't. It didn't, you know, Gore said enough of that, please. He's the elected president. There are a lot of people who believe that Bush went to war over oil. They still believe that. But again, this is, it's not an animating force. You know, this, what has taken place. But do you, I mean, let me, let me be devil's advocate here and say, look, for your average person in America to, to have it described as a fact that America today is a white supremacy, is a, is a state of white supremacy, seems quite bonkers. Yeah. But it is. The idea that that a woman can have a penis seems quite bonkers. Yeah, and those two fact, those two statements, are very much woven into just the background culture of what it is to be an elite. Sure, and and I I 
And how many people do you need to challenge that? Right. Right. You don't. And also because we have this geographical sorting as well as this class sorting, and because we've changed so fast, the, the ability of one group to talk to the other or to understand the other in an age of completely disintermediated media is you something like this was going to happen. Some level of epistemological collapse right. was kind of inevitable. Well, and, and you know, Trump is obviously the catalyst for that, but not the creator or not the cause of it. No, but he, it's no accident that he's a Twitter phenomenon. That's right. how he started. Sure. And it's no accident he's also preternaturally delusional. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In, in some ways, I feel, I've, we've said this before, but I, I'm happy, interested to see what your view is. You see, I think that COVID kind of disproved the idea that Trump wanted to run the country with an iron fist. Mm. He doesn't want to control other people in that way. It's yeah. too much work. Right. And it's and he's not actually, he's really only interested in himself. Well, what, yeah, and, in, and then secondarily in retribution and punishing his enemies. Yes, which of course is a huge part of his appeal, just right. those people. Yes. Yeah, they uh, share the same enemies. Yeah. But I think where he corroded things dramatically was in this epistemological thing because he lied in ways and believed his own lies out of this, I think, psychological compulsion in ways that are incredibly easy to be persuaded by. And he's an incredibly good salesman. Sure. So what he did was kind of spread the acid of complete distrust right. and the sense that you can say things that are obviously untrue, like my inauguration crowd is bigger than Obama's right. first day. If you don't agree with that, you have to be yelled at. I mean, this is, I, from the very beginning, this man is just simply delusional, yeah. right? So he gives permission for delusions. Sure, sure he does. But at the same time, even while, even while granting that permission structure, he is buying into, or he is, he is feeding into pre-existing notions that the Republican Party had seeded a long time ago. That's why yes. I've always said not so fast on the notion that Trump hijacked the Republican Party, because that presupposes that the plane bore no responsibility and that the plane was a healthy vessel. You know, it's, I mean, just- When you say to, a plane, I mean, you're using an analogy that you use in the book of, of, of a, an airplane. Right. And suddenly the cabin wasn't rushed and suddenly someone was, the pilot was ejected. Uh, that's he right. He was invited on to fly the next flight. No, that's exactly right. And, and just to take one example, I mean, it, it has been axiomatic amongst mainstream Republicans, or well, a couple of them. One is that it's cheap, that they steal elections right. all the time. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's, I've grown up hearing Republicans say that, that, and of course, this, there is more than a, just a little bit of a racial component to this, of the notion that, you know, black ministers with, you know, walk around money are buying votes. And, and uh, so there's that. And then also the, the notion that Hillary Clinton is crooked Hillary. Well, no one ever used that phrase before, but it's axiomatic amongst Republicans that, that Hillary Clinton was guilty of some crime or other. In fact, she'd never been indicted for any crime, much less convicted. But but so Trump was playing into a language and, and saying it out loud, right, that was silent but but implicitly but you, understood. You, you know the Republican Party of the 90s with Clinton. So it was quite similar in right. some respects. Sure. It, it was it was it was it was foam foam specked at the mouth in ways that were very hard to fully grasp. Right. I mean, Clinton was maddening because he was such a liar and such an asshole in so many ways, and so as well as hugely charming and seductive and right. all those other, we all know about it. Sure. But nonetheless, I kept feeling, whoa, come on, it's just a little much yeah. at some level. But And then Obama, who was Mr. Moderate Nice, I might, from my perspective, I couldn't see anything 
right. that would have. And if 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 well, that's were, what you and I missed, and I I definitely copped to missing yeah. the degree of animus that attended his yeah. election. Why? You, why is yeah. that? Is yeah. is it the racial element? The sense that suddenly this 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 cultural elite from nowhere is going to run the world? Is I mean, what, what else it could it be? Because, I mean, we've had Harvard presidents. We've had more liberal presidents. We've had presidents who certainly were more elite than him, who had more money than him. The only distinguishing factor was the color of his skin. And and that's why, you know, the, the birther thing was potent, in, in, in which, by the way, was a commonly accepted thing at Tea Party, you know, in, in the Tea Party movement. It was it was understood, if not always said out loud, that, that there was something other about Barack Obama. Obama and and the you know compulsive feminizing of him. I mean the the refusal to take him on his own terms and despise him if you like, but instead to view him as something other is is distinct. And, and I, I missed I, it in real time. I I missed it because I couldn't in myself. And I'm not a flaming liberal. Yeah. I thought thank. God, we have the same guy who's actually going to handle things relatively well. I had lots of conservative feelings about him, and and I think, but and the fact that the the, the GOP could not bear him in a way. I mean, let's not talk about all the GOP. Right. He won, he won two elections, sure. Barack Obama, right. and he won because he won white people in the Midwest yeah. also. In 2008 and 2012, Romney set records amongst the white working class for the number of people who turned out for him. And it wasn't enough because he had, Obama had put together this very effective coalition that led to the Republicans under Reince Priebus realizing, you know, holy crap, we'd better come up with a way to expand our tent, which they endeavored to think through until Trump reversed it and said, no, we don't need to go for people who don't like us. Let's just go for people who like us and make them love us. Right. And and it worked, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, well, it's an easier way, right? It's, it's a lot harder. We know this in just in human relationships. It's a lot harder to get people who dislike you to like you. But it's also true, it seems to me, to just comp- I think you're generally right about that analysis, but it's also true that personalities are involved. Like the, Obama's political genius and mm-hmm. his ability to really inspire people and not alienate right. at least sufficient numbers of yes. people. And the story he told about America, which is one of greater and greater uh, inclusion right. as a story of success, a pro-American yeah. narrative. It right. was, it's the only narrative that could work. That's the point. That's see. I think that that. I mean, you'll recall that that at first Obama had an aversion to wearing, you know, the flag pin, you know, the lapel pin, and Obama gave that big speech in Cairo that the right immediately caricatured as an apology tour. Right. And so you couple that with the with his unusual name and with the color of his skin, and it all feeds into this narrative that he he ain't like us. And that clearly was that's like I knew there were lots of people who would hate him, but I figured after two terms they would say, well, you know, there wasn't an all black cabinet. There wasn't reparations. You know, that's he didn't take away our guns. I guess that wasn't so bad. And I was dead wrong. Right. I know. So was I. Although, again, we can we can exaggerate that stuff. The fact is that Hillary did win the popular vote, that there was yeah. not, you know, I don't want to completely sure. ignore the, the nuances of it because they were they were real. And that's what I'm trying to get at here, because, you know, the Tea Party, you know, those people. You also grew up among people who could today be regarded as part of the conservative mm-hmm. movement. For sure. But something did seem to happen with Trump. And I do think part of it is the delusional thinking and the conspiracy, which yeah. just comes naturally right. to him. It's just like his instinctual. And of course, that also goes racial questions and all the rest of it. But 
but something else too, right? They just, they, maybe it's just the media structure that allow them to spin tales of complete insanity. Well, again, I think that yeah, you couple the or, or you you know put together first the alternative media sources with Trump's compulsive lying, with their deep belief in Trump. First, because again, as I was saying, they share the same enemies. I mean, here's a Manhattan real estate developer, billionaire, who would only know someone in South Carolina because he played on a golf course there or something. But they, what they liked was his language about China. They liked his language about you know the disaster known as Obamacare. They really loved his language about building the wall and making Mexico play for that. That all sounded cool. And then they liked how he never apologized for anything, including the grab him by the pussy moment, you know, in October of 2016. And, and uh, so he seemed like their kind of warrior. And, and so th that leads to a willingness to believe his stuff. You, you know, you combine that with what I was saying before, that a sense of loss that, that attended so many people who are non-college educated white working class voters. And, and, and that made all of them susceptible to the big lie. But to me, you know, that remains I mean, here we are again, just on the heels of the midterms with a lot of people wishfully thinking that Trump is now, you know, the death knell of Trump, you know, of Trumpism has begun, to which I again say not so fast, especially, you know, when, you know, we have tens of millions of people who believe that the election was stolen. Do they really? And, and they and they believe all these proximate lies, too, right? They believe that January the 6th was take your pick, an ordinary tourist event or set up by, you know, the FBI and Nancy Pelosi or the violence was. Antifa. They believe that COVID vaccines are, take your pick, you know, ineffectual, murderous, a Chinese plot. And and so they so believe let, let this me, stuff. How do they get divested of this? Not overnight is the answer. Well, yeah, but let me let me suggest, let me, let me defend the nutcases on this stuff, because what they would say is, I think, that, and if there were a sane argument to worry about the 2016 election, mm -hmm. it would be because it was a, a very different election. COVID rules changed a lot. Sure. That mail-in ballots yeah. were just exponentially increased right. that there has long been worries about ballot harvesting and all sorts of other uh, gimmicks however exaggerated they have been but it's not completely crazy to think that with a whole new means of voting which necessarily is a little easier to g gambit than than they all go to the polls then that legitimate worry which we disproved, I think. But nonetheless, I don't think it's crazy to say, hold on, we don't, why are we all suddenly voting a month before election right. day? Why are we all having, that's, that's, you see, that's the, that's the kernel that they then whip sure, up into every this. Every conspiracy theory contains a bit of logic to it and even, and even a little bit of, you know, factuality to it in this particular case. It begins with a distrust of the government, and there are a couple of things that, that are part of that for a Trump aficionado. One is the so-called Russia collusion hoax, and Marjorie Taylor Greene said to me, for example, that you know once it became clear that there that that there wasn't this grand conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence operatives to steal the election, then she just said, screw you to the media. And that gave her a permission structure to go to QAnon. And, and others didn't go that drastically, but it gave them an opportunity to say, I won't listen to what the New York Times and CNN says. Well, look, they overplayed it, did they not? Yes. I mean, they they told us there was some sort of Rosetta Stone to this incredible event, right. oh, of course. and it lay in the bowels right. of the of the Kremlin. There yeah. were so I get it. Of right. course, you don't believe sure. these motherfuckers. They, right. they 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 got completely. They they were so desperate to find a reason why Hillary Clinton right. lost, where you didn't need to find look very far sure. to see why Hillary Clinton lost. You just have to look at Hillary Clinton right. and listen to her, and you realize why she lost. No, but they went there. So, they... so here again, the establishment itself 
kind of fed the paranoia. Not only that, because it wasn't just the media, it was also the FBI that fucked up in a few cases. Right. Not, I don't think right. they were corrupt, but they fucked up a bit. Sure. And and even now, I can't, you know, I can't, I, you know, I got shouted down at a dinner party for saying, but, but, but you know, it, it really wasn't what you made it out to right. be. But I mean, part of that was that, you know, so the Senate Intelligence Committee, which was tasked by Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to to investigate Russia was chaired by Richard Burr, a Republican, and they looked into it. And ultimately, their conclusion was that the that the Trump campaign was incapable of organizing a one car funeral. You know, yes. uh, but and and that there was a lot of grifting, a lot of you know financial opportunism it's going like on. It's like this there. whole notion that he's the. The documents that he should not have taken were a There was some elaborate scheme to sell them right. for. No, he yeah. just was like, "These are mine." Yeah. It, but it's, it's still, it's 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 proper to investigate in in both cases. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and Definitely. it's and it's but, worth but, noticing that the investigators are not all partisans. I mean, the Senate Intelligence Committee wasn't. Mueller wasn't. No. Now, some of the people maybe on certain cable news networks were partisan and were seeing two plus two and calling it twenty two. But that's not to say that the investigations themselves were. No, you're right. Absolutely. The other thing too is that but like, also, but then. And that's the key thing. When Robert Mueller is not exactly Larry Tribe, no. I mean, he's not exactly uh, when he says, nah, you yeah. know, it's some some troubling stuff here, but, you yeah. know, not that much. Right. You'd have thought then that would say, oh, the establishment gets us. Right. They have debunked this. But no, they didn't see it that way at all. No, and what's interesting is this also harks back to when Trump ran for president. And you'll remember, Andrew, in his second debate when he called out George W. Bush to Jeb Bush and Marco yeah. Rubio and others saying that, that, that going to war in Iraq was the dumbest foreign policy mistake <laughs> we've ever made. And and they were very defensive about that. And a lot of Republicans clutched their pearls. But, you know, that argument that carried the day. That, However, how- what Trump was basically saying was not just that was a mistake in and of itself. He he was saying so much for your experts, you know, right. screw experts. And, it, and it, that gave a permission structure for, a, a sol, you know, a, the apprentice celebrity to become president of the United States. You know, I just my book prior to this was on Bush's decision to invade Iraq. It was a massive intelligence failure. The, but an additional failure was the Bush administration's determination that since the intelligence community couldn't tell them precisely where bin Laden would strike America on 9-11, that that gave them permission to no longer rely on intelligence and just make shit up, you know, and just just come up with a an imagination scenario about Saddam having these, you know, colluding with al-Qaeda and having this whole arsenal the 1% of weapons. The 1% doctrine is what you're yeah. talking about. And, right. and if, 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 if the government has to be prepared for the 1% option, then, then it's going to overdo everything. Right. It, 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 so that's, you know, that's why, I mean, uh, so yes, it's understandable that people would say, oh, you know, Russia, no Russia collusion. Therefore, you know, these guys are erroneous and flawed. But to say, to give to to conclude from that is therefore I will never listen to the media. I will right. only no, listen to Trump and QAnon. Yeah. is a bit problematic. It is more than a little problematic. I'm just <laughs> trying to understand also right. yeah. because you know there are many subjects like the, the 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 gender stuff, for example, where people suddenly their kids are coming home and saying, "Well, mom, I can choose whether to be a boy or a girl or a dragon sure. if I want to. Right. Look, I can fly. Right. Can I get the hormones to be a dragon?" <laughs> and you know, it's, and, and people are like, well, what, what, when, when did this start happening? Right. And there's a sense there is, and they're not wrong. There is this kind of educated establishment that just simply imposes stuff sure. without even debating it, without even putting it out there. And it, and you, you add that to the way the financial elites fucked up in 2008, the way that 
mainstream policy after 2008 right. in America, but also in Europe, was was misjudged. Sure. <laughs> the, the, we have COVID. We we do a stimulus, but in fact, the stimulus is probably a little too much. These people are not omniscient, no. clearly. No. The, the Iraq war as well. And at some point, if there aren't other responsible elites coming in there and saying, yes, we did this wrong, we need to do this, right. someone is going to come up from the bottom and say, screw you all. And no. then, it, then it gathers momentum. I, I think the one thing that Trump is incredibly talented as a demagogue. Yeah. Again, we just can't deny that. No, that's right. It helps that he's insane. Yeah. But because he but, plays a demagogue plays on fears and resentments. You know, it's 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 less about what I'm going to do for you and more about again retribution. How I'm going to punish the people who've been who've you know you've been ground under the boot hill of these nefarious forces, and I'm the guy who's going to fight them for you. It's it's not so much about affirmatively you know how I will make your lives. Well, better. here's why I'm going to push back a little bit on sure. the idea that Trump, I know I don't want to th I don't want to hope either I, I've been bitten well I haven't been I've not I've not been that hopeful about <laughs> it for a long time but I am actually have a different mood this week than I did last week yeah. and it is because not because necessarily because the elections turned out that way although that was that was obviously surprising to me and to a lot of people and really informative again we right. got it wrong another sure. bunch of fucking elites got it wrong right, <laughs> right. so yeah. i mean it's like exactly please we have not a leg to stand on we yeah. have to start from accepting the reality that there have been huge elite fuck-ups and we need to acknowledge that and think about them and correct them but what i think the, the, the moment i think he he really fucked up actually he can't help himself because mm -hmm. he's not right. really in control of himself yeah. was it in the wake of it to attack desantis mm -hmm. yeah yeah, the, the Republicans have gone through a pretty awful night. Right, the only the only little spot of hope was this exactly. rally, and he picks the one Republican who's done extraordinarily well. Yeah. And so that is an act that you any human being can right. understand. He does not give a shit about us. Yeah, all he cares about is to kill that one. Yeah, and that, that is incredible. That's a that's a very simple thing to understand. Sure. And I think it. I think it's you know saying I I. I uh, I, I read Kurt Schlichter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said his DMs and emails were overwhelmed with people with rage about yeah. this. Yeah, rage. Yeah. Right, right. Of course, I I don't know if Schlichter's DMs are filled with you know average folks or if they're you yeah, know they're all, right they're all nut jobs. They're all they're all yeah. yeah. But I do think that that was you know I mean it's not for the first time have we seen Trump do something. <laughs> sorry, that was I shouldn't say they're all nut jobs. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just that's that's, right. I, that's that's exactly the sin that I'm supposed to be yeah. against. No. Some of them, a right. lot of them are really hardcore because Schlichter is about as hardcore as you can get. Right. That's all I'm saying. So. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's, but look, I mean, I, I think that your your analysis and presumably Schlichter's are correct that that Florida is like the one bastion of hope for Republicans. They look at Florida and secondarily as Texas as, as the, these are places where things are turning out the way we want them to. And 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 we we love those two governors in charge. And and yeah, for Trump to lash out at one of them, because obviously that's his proximate foe in the Republican Party, if indeed they both run, is, you know, was, yeah, just, you know, a big turd in the punch bowl for them and 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 really ill advised. I, I but there have been so many other times that you hear conservatives when I go to to Republican grassroots groups, when I go to MAGA rallies where they'll say, yeah, you know, I wish he wouldn't say this or that. But he's still the guy who um, who I mean, it plays into this sense 
that Trump is incapable of lying in their view because he's a compulsive truth teller. He just he can't help himself. And, and that to me is like the real mark of a confidence man, of a con artist, that he can gain your confidence by convincing you that he is all too human and really is incapable of doing anything other than revealing himself all the time. So they feel like he is unique in that regard. And and Trump is a curious creature because in a lot of ways he can't he, he can't help himself and will reveal himself unwittingly. But he's also a compulsive liar, too. Right. Those those two phenomena somehow coexist within the, liar the same post-Ronnie. The liar who projects authenticity is, you know, is, is a character in American history right. and culture. Yeah. I mean, from every, you know, carnival barker to every revivalist. Yeah. But I mean, the times I've spent with Trump, I mean, it's, those things happen within a, the same, you know, 30 second period that you'll hear him say three things that are lies and two things that are just astoundingly self-revealing and and that you know his his paranoia his need to be loved all of that comes through and, and he says things like he said this on election night or just before election night i think he said of all the races where we do well i'll take the credit of, yeah and all the others have failed it's others it's not my fault that's right exactly <laughs> well just on my way over here i was looking i get these blast emails from the save america again, aren't thing. you compelled by that i just kind of i'm just i remember when, when he was like yeah i i structured i i i went after COVID me because of Russia. Right. And I'm like, yeah. you, 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 just, yeah. you just admitted on... And the trouble with prosecuting him is he already admitted on live TV that he committed obstruction of justice. It's astounding that anyone will legally represent him. I mean, it's... <laughs> he tried to give... He wanted Russia. Right. I asked Russia directly yeah. to release him, and they did. Right. And now, why are you chasing around right. finding some secret moment sure. when he asked and got, yeah. when he publicly did it? No, that's right. It's a, On my way over here, That's I get blast emails from Trump's pack, and the, the one that I got just, you know, a few minutes ago was a poll to send to all the Trump supporters is... Donald Trump, the greatest president of all time. And so, you know, A, yes, B, no. And, and uh, I mean, it's just in, in, in the immediate wake of the debacle of the Tuesday midterms and with his, you know, with his numbers really in the tank. And I mean, Trump, as you were saying before, I mean, he's never won the popular vote. And it's always worth pointing out that, that Trump is a distinctly unpopular political figure who just happened to run up against in 2016 a, another unpopular political figure who's still got three million more than him. Yes. The one of the weird things this time around, which I think is a really good thing, is that the racial demographics kind of evened out a little yeah. bit more. In other words, that Republicans might actually be a little disadvantaged now yeah. uh, because they have lots of black and I'm sorry, Asian and Latino votes spread in red states mm -hmm. more than they used to, which they have already. And right. so that, that actually that imbalance, which which suggests to me that I'm not one of these get rid of the electoral college people. Right. But uh, I. I get a maybe we, um, we're, we're recording this before Trump's speech, which will be fascinating, mm -hmm. I'm sure, sure, and we'll try to figure out what it does. But I, I just sense this just exhaustion with this guy, even on the far right, and and a frustration that if you can't win three elections in a row, at some point you need to move on. Well, and DeSantis is different. I I really think just I've I've yeah. thought about that him from the beginning because he's. He is he doesn't have the gift that Trump has right. of intuitively coming up with these issues. No, no. I, I mean, I also. You what know, do you I think mean, of DeSantis? Have you met him? Have you, I've never met him. Okay. No, no. I mean, it's and and I I have some skepticism about his 
political prospects because I heard something very similar to this about Scott Walker. Yeah, you know yeah. that, that Scott Walker was you know the great hope for the Republican Party because he was also a fighter. He busted up the unions, the public you know the public employee unions in Wisconsin, and then he was a paper tiger on the campaign trail. And 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 you know DeSantis behind his bully pulpit in, in Florida seems to do quite well, but he is to put it kindly physically unimposing, kind of a short fellow. The short he would be, I think, like the shortest president we've ever elected. And and he the question is, is he shorter than Rishi Sunak? <laughs> shorter than Emmanuel Macron? Well, apparently, it's also tiny. Right. And apparently, Olaf Scholz is sure. also in the Tyrion. Except every place that you've named has had, you know, a woman leader, and we have not. And so, there, yeah. for whatever reason, yeah. those kinds of optics matter in America in a way yeah. that perhaps they don't as much over there. I mean, there's there's no question, but that DeSantis has been quite canny insofar as he's not risen to Trump's bait. I think the view is, why don't we spend the next several months letting Trump fight Trump, let Trump take down Trump, because he does himself no favors when he's on stage. And look, I, I believe that there is a great exhaustion, certainly amongst you know political insiders and maybe even Republican activists who hunger to win and are tired of this guy talking endlessly about you know 2020 and about himself. They want to see results, and Trump hasn't provided any. But I've never seen anything in my life like I see at Trump rallies where thousands of people are not just showing up and cheering him. They are wearing his image on their shirt. It is a cult of personality unlike anything we have seen in American politics. And the Republican Party will not divest itself of that so readily. I mean, these are people who have an infatuation with Trump. They they see him as a kind of superhero, you know, as a sort of demigod. They, 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 they feel his pain. He believes that against all evidence that he feels their pain. They also believe that God shows him. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right, and 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 again, so I mean, you know, so there, the uh, as it turns out, Trump, you know, was not the great transactionalist, the great deal maker that the Apprentice made him out to be, but he he committed one stellar transaction. He sealed the deal on the transaction with the evangelicals and uh, and with the federal. And he society. delivered. Yeah, yeah, he delivered because it it cost him nothing in his view. He didn't care about these things, you know. No, and, well, he uh, probably cares a little bit about the ability of his various paramours to yeah. have access to reproductive care. Let's, say. <laughs> let's put it in as in, in as politically correct language yeah. as one possibly can. Right. You know, he fought his own Vietnam, right. as we know. Right. That was about venereal diseases, not yeah, about no, pregnancy. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah I, right. It's, but but no, I mean the the point is is that like you know Trump. Cares so really. how do these? But this is what I kind of interested yeah. in. How does that? How do people dislodge? You've talked to these people. Some of them presumably will never be dislodged. They'll go yeah. to their, right. their graves, sure. saying we, we we were robbed, and he's it was. But I've noticed other techniques that that, for example, Mark Thiessen today mm -hmm. in the Washington Post is a about as right wing as you'll yeah. get. And he was a huge enthusiast for torturing yes. people back in the he day, was. as I recall. He definitely was. <laughs> anyway, he's saying. Trump is magnificent, pre greatest president of all time, huge job growth, Nobel Peace Prize for the Abraham Accords, Project Warp Speed, amazing technological breakthrough. Thank you so much. You're the fucking greatest. Here's your, here's your trophy. Here's your, here's your golden toilet or whatever they yeah, give him right. on retirement. <laughs> and, and then, you know, help us. Joined with Ron DeSantis to 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 bring about, and of course, in the rational world, we'd all love that to happen. I mean, sure. not we all. My 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 primary goal is keeping that man out of 
office. Period. Because I think he's I think he's insane and dangerous. But but your point is even a guy a guy who's rapidly pro Trump like like Mark Thiessen would say you know can't you can't you move on and help us in fact help the new generation of Republican leaders. I mean I've known Mark for a long time and your characterization of him is is pretty on the mark. But Mark is also a political professional. He wants to win and 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 you know there. I think there exists within the Republican grassroots the the base that you know the MAGA base that constitutes the loudest voices in the room, a sense of despair that already you know even the you know with Make America Great Again that that's a kind of a nostalgic last trip on the dance floor and and victory is not so important when they believe that Republicans just come into office and then forget about you. Right. And that's uh, the one thing I, I wanted to ask you more about January 6th because it's it's the riveting opening yeah. of your book and it's it must have been horrifying to be there in the middle of it all yes but and it was terrifying and violent and horrible it was also weird and goofy yeah. and and Mr Mr QAnon with the tusks and the and right. and it when you said they don't actually want to win elections they kind of just want to be heard in a way yeah. it was like they caught the car and this wasn't actually we weren't actually in danger of losing our system of government but we were subjected to what seemed to be a bizarre piece of domestic terrorism slash cosplay term slash costume lunacy that's what i have a that's what i think we've had a hard time how do we the same with trump it is both terrifying and preposterous mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what's hard to kind of yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so just deconstructing the January 6th crowd, there were many, you know, there were tens of thousands of people who were there, 2,000 roughly who were inside, 900 who've been charged thus far, with many more still to be charged. There were a lot of people there, Andrew, who I think were just you know, standard issue Trump supporters, you'd see them at any MAGA rally. And they were there because the president had called them, you know, to be there. And they wanted to show their support. A significant subset of that believed that they were there because Trump wanted them to fight like hell, you know. And and I've certainly heard those people in the outdoor group before. I saw people, you know, pushing their way into the West Tech, the West Terrace. And there were others who, who clearly had designs of overthrowing the government by force and and uh, others still i think who got caught up in the moment and 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 i you know yeah you know it was it was not you know i knew showing up to that was my first day on the job for my for my book and and i was showing up for what i just thought would be a ceremonial event i mean that's what it's supposed to be the certification of the vote there were a lot of rally goers you know outside the capitol already before one o'clock and and when i couldn't get into the press gallery because of social distancing they they only allowed a few i just kind of moseyed around the capitol on my own and just happened to head into the rotunda and then saw coming out of the west the west side these policemen you know running at you know just charging from from outdoors and as i moved in that direction then i saw the west terrace doors fly open i saw you know these cops come staggering in beaten and maced and then saw you know all these people hanging from the scaffolding for what would be the rafters you know for the for the inaugural it looked like you know some something out of you know mad max or apocalypse now and 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 to see these police as they started coming in one after the next 
you know, with mucus coming out of their eyes and their noses and, and you know, their faces distended and this look of utter terror and bewilderment. It was the kind of thing that, you know, I've, you mentioned at the top that I've written for National Geographic over the last 15 years. I've been in a lot of conflict zones, you know, like Somalia and Yemen and, and Libya. And, and I might have expected a tableau like that there, but not here, not in the U.S. Capitol. And, 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 and then once I got outside and saw everybody pushing their way in from, from the east side of the Capitol, and, and to be in that crowd and just to feel this visceral rage and to know that anything was possible, pretty much all of it bad, and that had they seen any member of Congress or Vice President Pence, there's no question in my mind, but there would have been violence against them. No question. I mean, that, and it was not so much that everyone there at the time came in with that intention, but they were clearly caught up in it. And and it was, it was out of control. And to see police scurrying around to no tactical end, clearly unable to control the situation was itself alarming. I, you know, looking back on it, it is a miracle that more people didn't die that day. And, and, but in all of the, you know, emotions that I felt, I mean, brokenhearted was one of them too, because I really did believe I was seeing democracy just tilt downwards at that moment. I think we all did. The question was perspective, yeah. really. And that has been the core question of the last five years, perspective. Yeah. Like, it seems like we're facing a dictator. Are we? Yeah. Are we not? Is, right. and, and we've been struggling from data point to data point yeah. to try and figure out where we are. But this week, well, last week, I should say, is does strike me as a data point. Mm -hmm. You have seen quite clearly a rejection, especially of the election deniers, which I think is obviously from my point of view, the most important thing. Right. The, the, the most prominent stop the steal people did not win, and they didn't win in states where other Republicans did better. So there's a clear choice being made that right. this far, but no further, that that robbed them of the Senate. And it's basically led them to not a governing majority in the sure. House. It's just going to be a complete no, shit oh, show. Yeah, it um, will be. Yeah. But, but I mean, after January the 6th, the thinking was, you know, Republicans will regain their senses. But then what happened was they started hearing from their constituents and their constituents said, you know, how dare you abandon us? And by the way, January 6th was just a couple of broken window panes and, and you know, an Antifa setup and, and you still need to fight the good fight. And, and so what remains to be seen is what happens when these Republicans who've received such a scare. I mean, look, they may well come to the conclusion, Andrew, on the House side that, you know what, a majority is a majority. We now, we now run committees. We now run investigations. We can now do an impeachment inquiry. You know, it's, we can do a lot of things even with a majority of one. So there will be this flush of, of euphoria, I think, amongst Republicans that now finally, I'm, you know, I, I get to be a chairman. I get to, you know, and-, and Do you I, think any of them, I mean, here's, here's, here's what I, I also gleaned from your book, which is that you ask yourself, why did the people around Trump, why did the people in the Republican hierarchies make the decisions that they made? Yeah. And the excuses they told themselves about it. And what I found kind of remarkable is the lack of, and I know I, <laughs> we're in Washington, we're hard bitten. Right. We don't expect our politicians right. to be utopian dreamers all sure. the time. Of right. course not, right? Yeah. But the extent of the sheer careerism 
it's all that mattered to these people. Right. It's as if there wasn't a principle that they recognized. And all they did was assess situations in which, am I going to get ahead by this? Am right. I going to get slammed by this? Well, that there's a story it. they tell themselves, that, that and they tell it to others, and they've told it to me. And the story is, look, Okay, you want me to to say Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're a nut job, or Matt Gates, you're you know you're a craven idiot. I can do that. Then I'm going to get primaried on the right. I'll get the Liz Cheney treatment. You see what happened to her? I mean, as you may say, she's right, but she's also out of a job. And guess what? You know now now there's an election denier who's taken her place. There will be someone, Matt Gates, on steroids who takes my place. Does that serve the institution? Does that serve our interests? The question answers itself. So it's best that I just go to ground, wait for these people to self-immolate, and they're all quietly hoping that this is that moment. But when the moment comes where they have to stand up and proactively say, no MAGA movement, we're not doing this anymore because we're tired of defeat. This is, this is not serving conservative interests to lose cycle after cycle. We'll see if they do that. It's very likely, though, that if they hear from, again, the loudest voices in their caucus, the people who show up to the town halls, the people who who are organized to call their switchboards, that they'll say, no, nah, I can't bear it. You know, that's, there's already going to be a primary challenge to me if I if I say something. I mean, like the lieutenant governor of Virginia had said, we need to move on from Trump. And already on social media, the far right is saying primary her ass, you know, and, and maybe she'll stand up to it. Virginia is different than some of these other places. But but the, re, the reality, Trumpism will not go down without a fight. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that's correct. It'll be a very interesting fight, don't you think? I mean, the yeah. next two or three years are going to be quite astounding. Here's uh, one thing already that's interesting, like you. So one guy I, I keep an eye on is Charlie Kirk, the head of Ta Talking Points USA, Turning Point USA, the leading you know, far right youth group for the Republican Party. But his influence really transcends just youth. He's a very influential guy. He's been doing all this, you know, theft stuff. But now in the wake of Republican losses, you're hearing him saying more and more about, wow, we really screwed up. You know, we didn't get our people out and all that. It's actually the language of reality. You know, for Yeah, and not only that, but there was a, on the same podcast that night, there was a woman on that. I can't remember her name. Wendy Rogers. Okay, who said, uh, it's like we've, we've, been talk we've been talking to ourselves yeah. the whole time. We're and in an no echo one is more more, I mean, uh, you know. Well, that's what I meant about Kurt Schlichter. That's what I meant about yeah. about Mike Cernovich. Right. right. When you, I mean, he lost Ann Coulter sure. a long time ago. Right. But when you've lost Cernovich, when you've lost Schlichter, right. I mean, he hasn't completely lost sure. Schlichter. Schlichter's like, if he runs again, you know, blah, blah, right. blah, blah. Lots of caveats, and he's a great president, was a great president, but this is crazy. And the language he uses is that he serves us. He's right. not, we, we're not. We well, don't worship that guy. And that is a real mood change. It's a mood change. But again, some of these people said this right after January the 6th. Yeah. And then they started hearing from the base. And then, you know, they they piped down. So we'll see, you know, if if Wendy Rogers, who has fanned the flames of all this QAnon stuff for, for so long, I mean, for a moment, she actually said, you know, what her head said, you know, and what her head told her to say. But uh, but we'll see what happens when she hears from her constituents. Tell me something I don't really appreciate about George W. Bush. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're... they're it's a totally different topic. Yeah, it's, yeah. No. Well, I'm fascinated by what he does today, how he watches this news, sure. how he considers his own, his own catastrophic right. legacy. Well, these are things you probably appreciate, but we've all forgotten about that that were true about Bush. First is that he appreciates institutions. You know, right. even even the press who he had a combative relationship with, he still never thought he would never say the enemy of the American people. He would never even believe it. And he appreciate he 
you know, Congress was a pain to him, but he understood, you know, that you can't do everything by, you know, executive authority. Bush was also the polar opposite of Trump when it came to being a manager. People loved working for Bush. You, He never would throw people under the bus. He would never blame people for something that he himself had done. He would never take, you know, out his own anguish or, or, or whatever on people. And, and so the other thing, I mean, is that, you know, I, I mean, there, this is a kind of, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln about Bush, but other than the gross intelligence failure that was the Iraq war, Bush actually did care about, you know, what the intelligence community and the fact-based community had to say. He he was faithful to read the presidential daily brief, to, to do his daily briefing. I mean, he did that all the time. And, and Trump, you know, really actually would say, you know, to people in the CIA who briefed him, as well as to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I know more than you do. You know, I know much more than you do. And and I know more about Putin. I know more about Erdogan. And, and I mean, Trump really was his own intelligence community. And, and, and so for those of us who covered both administrations, that's among the striking differences. And of course- Except uh, that in Bush's case, the intelligence was- catastrophically wrong and it was, killed his presence. Yeah, but although there was, within that intelligence, there was a lot of doubt. It's just that that doubt right. got scrubbed. You know, the, the national intelligence estimate that claimed that, that Saddam had, declaratively that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. The people, the, the analysts on whose backs, on whose analysis that report was created, they themselves had honest doubts. Those just got scrubbed out. And and that's the infuriating thing about, you know, the lead up to the Iraq war, that evidence was there to to tell us not so fast. We should not be doing this. Right. I I I many times taken responsibility for getting caught up in that. And a lot of people in Washington do. We were all terrified. Yeah. We we Again, this is this is a kind of paranoid thing on the left in some ways. The idea that they deliberately lied, lied us into war because yeah. they love war. Right. It's just no, no, they, no. They 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 made they did something much more recognizable, right? Yeah, which is they believed things they wanted to believe sure. because they were terrified of the consequences of not believing them, and they relied on their own experience and their own biases. You know, that's as humans are wont to do. Even even though Roosevelt constantly taught of the dangers of relying upon your own biases, right. I mean, he, he was a, a living refutation of his own actions Completely. all the time. Yeah, yeah, but it's but you're exactly right that no, I mean Bush was not eager to go to war. I mean, he he had a full domestic agenda, knew very little about, you know, about any foreign country other than Mexico. And he would have been delighted to keep it that way, you know. And 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 yes, Cheney had ties to oil and gas, as did Bush in the way back. Does that mean that they went to war so that to, to help people in Halliburton? It's ludicrous. Right. It just doesn't. One of the things I often tell people, I tell people, share with people that I, outside of D.C., especially people who are very suspicious of the place, right. is that they come up with these vast conspiracy theories or they, they imagine the CIA like it is in the movies with some huge giant wall of flashing right. lights yeah. <laughs> and everyone knows everything and it's all nailed down and everything's a plot and a Five people know it. I'm like, no, it's yeah. just not like that. No. Thank God it's not like right. that. But it's not. No, Power that's is right. diffuse. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, one of the great experiences of doing the Iraq book was that I interviewed, I think, about 150 people in the intelligence community. So just tons of people within the CIA and the DIA and and the NSA, and to talk to them and and understand their own human frailties and why they made assumptions, why they were shouted down, why they they you know the and, and you know it's. It, 
it was a very different experience from doing this book where those were logic-based people who still were undone by their own human frailties and their own human biases, as opposed to people who just willfully make up facts or who are doing it as a grift, right? You know, that's, but it, but, you know. But I think the majority, and I think this is another dangerous idea, is that everyone's doing this for money. Right. They're not. No. The, 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 the people that voted for Trump with such enthusiasm we're not doing it for those reasons. No, of course not. And it's and and, and there are people. Do you think his 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 a bigger picture yeah. question? Because I, you know, trying to understand why this happened, why people snap, why people did something. I'm also trying to understand Brexit too. This, this is. Right. Do you not feel that the pace of change that has been forced upon regular people, including I mean right. everyone, technological, sure. the economic shift in which labor and what used to be reliable middle class wages are disappearing the 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 globalization of everything including media so that you know everyone's got the same global media at right. this point english speaking term media and then then on top of this we have gay men marrying each other and now we have the abolition of men and women and gender and sex right. entirely and then we have critical race theory which redefines america as a slaveocracy and given the imprimatur of the new york times and sent out this is a lot for people to absorb sure. as well as the highest level of foreign-born population since the 1920s right uh, right which always creates pressure and oh stress. for sure well and and look you know i mean and the southern border again yeah. there's something um, that to me for example if you think of the southern border and people's clear desire to have it secure at least a lot let's say a huge swath of america right. like that it hasn't been done right. i understand why people say well they don't want to do this they're not going to do it right. shouldn't be that hard to be done sure and yet they're telling us to go screw ourselves yeah. and that we're a bunch of bigots and racists right right yeah i mean it's you know the so a lot there but a couple of points yeah, related to it it's i mean one is that you know i mean democracy has become as democracy should in america more inclusive that makes that makes it messier it's it's more complicated when different voices are at the table i think that ultimately it produces you know a a more representative outcome but that doesn't mean that it's not difficult you know that that a you know a a, a group that's that's homogeneous will tend to argue only on the margins where a group that's a great deal more diverse is bound to see things in, in radically different ways. And, you know, and, and that requires an adjustment for sure. And you're right that all these other forces you know, from from high tech and the loss of the manufacturing base, the, the, the situation on the southern border creates all these complications and when, and even for those of us, and, I'm not thinking so much of myself, but others who are like clear beneficiaries of this. It still, you know, is it can be a discombobulating situation. But for people who whose lives become provably at minimum more complicated and and at maximum, you know, really, really hurt by the, the loss of the, the loss of whole swaths of economy uh, and their I, sense of dignity. And meaning, which sure. is also bound up in their idea of patriotism. That's what make America great again right. is. It's like all those things you loved America for that now seem to be actually subjects of derision right. among many of the elites. Yeah, and, and the decision by both parties, because, you know, it's politics can be simple, but also complicated. And, and you know, the decision is, you know, that, that sometimes trying to be 
trying to reach this constituency comes at the direct expense of that constituency that 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 they will see that you know that that maybe people on the on the left will see it as a slight that you're devoting so much attention to you know non-college educated white working class and and that the you know the 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 promotion as a you know a kind of new hero of say a Tim Ryan or something went and at the comes at the expense of a Kamala Harris and and you know look at the Republican Party clearly they're doing this too I mean they utterly gone to ground as any notion of let's broaden our tent. The Growth and Opportunity Project of 2013 is, you know, was strangled in its grip. But weirdly, if they had done that and seen 10% gains among Latinos and Asians in the next election, they would have declared it right. a triumph. Sure. The weird thing is, is that I think the left's overreach has diversified the Republicans in in more ways. Certainly, the than Latino one. community has become a great deal more. I mean, that you know, Democrats have failed to gain the the kind of hold over that community that they once had. The community has become more complicated gener generationally and in so many other ways. And neither neither party has done much to fully understand that. But you're right. I mean, I, whether through any fault of its own, any any sort of genius, any, any kind of grassroots effort, or just because they got lucky, Republicans are drawing more Latinos. And that said, you know, that there was a belief, and Kevin McCarthy was actively promoting this, that there was going to be a near clean sweep in South Texas of all these Latinos who are running. And I think three out of four of them got beaten. And, and uh, so, again, there is a tendency to go shorthand with this stuff. And, no, it's very complicated. It depends yeah. on the ethnicity it depends on the state it depends on what part of the state sure. i mean it's yeah. it's a it's a mix with any luck at some point we'll dispense with that category altogether but yeah. insofar as we haven't the republican party is has become and this is the, has become more diverse under trump yeah yeah i mean but let's you know I no mean, i know it's only at on the margins curve, you know? i know yeah. it's at the margins yeah. i'm not denying yeah. that but it's one of the paradoxes that, sure. that, that that people don't think necessarily in racial tribal terms all the time right yeah what's unclear is whether that is you know if, if that is unique to trump himself or if there is something either about republicans that certain aspects of the latino community are are increasingly drawn to or or if they're increasingly repelled by something going on amongst the Democrats. And there are tons of theories, none of which I've seen st statistical verification for, like that, that uh, oh, the, so many Latinos are pro-life because many of them are Catholic. I mean, that's that's something that's gone around forever and has not been borne out statistically in terms of being determinative in how Latinos vote. So, <laughs> Catholics frequently disobey their church yes. in, the, in the polling <laughs> yeah. booth and always and that is empirically that, true. Of war, especially in the modern world yeah but i don't know you know whether i mean in the you know as we sit here today in you know in the immediate wake of the republican midterms if any of this gets absorbed i mean it is a you know one thing i really it lament does feel to me i'm going to come back to this because yeah. you're you're I, i'm so disappointed you, both last week and this week both of my guests are like trump is gonna triumph and don't I'm and i understand that. no i understand yeah. where that comes from yeah. we're, we're all in we're all in ptsd but i i just feel i feel a mood shift yeah moderation that's what people wanted. They just wanted a little less of this. Well, I do think that so moderation, at least temperamentally, right? I don't yeah. know about it ideologically, but I mean the the you know the, the ceaseless drama that was provoked by you know Trump. I mean, again, I think that that there are swaths of the Republican constituency that actually live for that stuff. They love to see the fight. You know, they they love that more than they see than the results. Just the fight, the liberal tears, whatever. And and uh, and you know. <laughs> 
I and and look again. I mean, it's you know, I, I think that I mean, when Trump gave his you know June sixteenth, twenty fifteen announcement speech, I mean, every elite just laughed. I mean, they thought this 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 is ridiculous. And you know, Trump had a prepared speech. He totally ignored it. And and uh, I've actually seen the drafts of the speech. And 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 they were like, you know, this very kind of. I wouldn't say high-minded about immigration, but it certainly wasn't. We're going to build the wall and make Mexico pay for it, and their Mexico doesn't send their best. Instead, they send us, you know, uh, drug dealers and rapists. And and uh, Trump will do that again, you know, tonight. And you know, people will say, "There's no way this will play." You know, this and and yet it played. You know, and I've I've the it it can still play, and he can still lose. That's 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 the thing that the 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 structure again. I hate to go back to my yeah. friend Kurt. Um, <laughs> uh, he's just he's literally said I do not see a path for him to get 270 right. electoral votes as of now yeah now that's that's sobering and right. I think he's right um, if you look at well yesterday unless years, Kurt. unless you know it's Kamala Harris in 2024 right. or unless it's I mean that's what that's the other thing that comes up is like okay so we're, we're judging Trump against DeSantis but 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 who really is going to be the Democrat, right. and, and and that is still completely unknowable. I'm sure Biden feels good this week, and he should. But and yet his language has been tentative in his press conference after the midterms when he said, "My intention yeah, is to he's run." Kept saying that's that. stopping short. Yeah, he said that at least two or three times. That's stopping short of saying declaratively, "Come on, man." I am running. I am running. My intention is to run. It means he's giving himself wiggle room, and who knows if you know over the, over the you know end of the year holidays he'll 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 have some other notion. But yeah, you're correct that I mean. The uh, thing is that that can happen, which is also true of these extremes. I mean, you talk about MTG and the QAnon people and all those people at the at the. Similarly, there are a bunch of complete crazies on the far left as well, which normally we could, to some extent phase out of our view of existence. But now both sides has, especially in media, an actual incentive to find the craziest shit the other side yeah. is saying and broadcast it to their side. Right. It's great ratings. And so you have endless sort of QAnon stories on MSMZ. You have endless Antifa stories on on Fox. And it totally distorts yeah. our perspective, sure. even though not everyone watches cable news. No, that's right. Well, I mean, not for nothing did Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she ran... She ran more against AOC. I mean, the squad's right. worst nightmare and pictures of her, you know, holding her AR-15 with the juxtaposed against a photo of, of AOC looking panic stricken. And, and I, I do, by the way, I just have to say, I do not think that the far left, at least in terms of elected office holders, are as crazy no, as No, I'm not talking right. about the, the office holders. Yeah. I'm talking about the crazies in Antifa or the crazies in Yale or, right. or, or the people yeah. insisting that they're on a, there's no well, Sure, but they are woman. not, there's no evidence that I've seen that they're moving the democratic agenda and, and the democratic, you know, the, and under- You should tell that to few parents of school kids. Yeah, I've, I've, well, I'm aware that, you know, that, that, you know, just down the road in Virginia, I mean, that, that young can won in large part because of the, of, of, you know, the, the, the Democrat running against young can actually, you know, said, you know, schools should be, you know, handled by teachers, that they should be the ones in control of, of what students are taught. And that sat very poorly. And, but I mean, that is not the same thing as saying, you know, every student in high school is being taught critical race theory because they are not, you know, it's, that is, that's a trope that's worked really well on the right. That's not borne out by, by fact. Well, I think it is borne out by fact, but, but if you actually look at what they're being taught, I mean, it's not official critical race theory for fourth graders, but it is the notion that America was founded to oppress 
black people was part of a white supremacist movement across the world. That's being taught in, in, in uh, primary and middle, middle school? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, I yeah. think you'd be surprised. Yeah. Well, I would be surprised because I, um, you know, I haven't seen any evidence that's the case. Yes, on college campuses, you, you hear that a lot. You know, it's a, Do you think part of the problem right now is that the right has lost elites, that, that, that you need to run a national political party, lawyers, intellectuals, policy analysts, the whole range of people in universities, people in the media. And what's happened is that they've become so dominated by the non-college educated that increasingly, and the, the college educated and the people in college have increasingly alienated and thrown out and frozen out. Anybody isn't on board that, 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 that this, this affects everything. Right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, so let's, you know, certainly the Republicans have more than their share of billionaires and Elon Musk and others besides. It is true, though, and I remember Newt Gingrich saying this to me, you know, writing on an Acela once, and, and I was doing a story on him in 2005 or 2006, and he was bitching about the culture and, and, and about how Repo and conservatives were being ground under. And I said, what are you talking about, man? You guys control every branch of government. He said, that doesn't matter. You know, the liberals control the culture. And, and so it has been that way, at least in the eyes of conservatives, for a very long time. Is that problematic? It's certainly problematic insofar as I believed and benefited from when I was in school, hearing all different strands of thought you know, across the spectrum. And I loved being intellectually challenged, particularly when, you know, I when my thoughts were lazy about one thing or another. And I and I just think in the main that that when when that decreases, you know, any any student, any American is the poor for that. But it's but I'm certainly not going to sit here and say, you know, uh, what the Republicans really need are more elites. You know, that's they I mean, they will they, they even if they had more elites, they would almost certainly complain about what's going on in college campuses and they would find here and there things worth complaining about. Well, I'm glad we uh, agree to disagree about this topic. <laughs> it's fine. Thank you so much for coming in, Robert. It's been a, a wide ranging conversation. Are you are you more hopeful this week than you were last week? I know, I know you, you're still vigilant, and, and we have to see what Trump says this week. No, I'm, what I'm hopeful about is that the, I mean, we have heard from Kerry Lake, and we've heard from Mark Fincham, a couple of the you know more far-right Arizona office seekers, a lot of you know election fraud stuff, but that seems to be in the margins. Yeah, yes, isn't that we, staggering? Trump is doing it too, by the way. And and But Trump doesn't have an office now and he's not on Twitter. So he's still saying, oh, they're stealing elections left but and it's right. A, but it's, here's, now here's a piece of evidence in, in my case, which is that many of these races are really tight. Yeah, yes. Plenty of them are disputable. Sure. But they haven't, by and large, right. been disputed, certainly right. not more than usual. That, to me, is incredibly encouraging. It's the right. most important thing, is that we've sort of established that that rule, that these votes actually matter, right. that they, they're not lies, yeah. no, that's which right. strikes me that, in fact, it really is Trump's fucking psycho drama. His inability to accept that he could have lost yes. that created all of this. No, that's right. And it's and you know, we could see this train coming down the track. I mean, he lost his the very first political thing he ran for, the Iowa caucus. And when he did, he claimed fraud. He claimed that, that Cruz So stole when a he crime. loses in the primaries to DeSantis, if he does, yeah. he'll do the same of thing. Course. There is there is of no way out of his 
right. his bubble until everyone else leaves it. Right, but you're right, Andrew, that if, if DeSantis does take sufficient hold on the imaginations and, and affections of Republican voters and Trump tries to pull that, if uh, he gets clouded in you know, the Iowa caucus or, or something by, by DeSantis, then, then yeah, it may well be that that shit won't fly anymore. It may well be that, that people say, you know what, enough already. We, we, we indulged you for a but now it would seem that you're just a sore loser. A while ago, I, I really worried that the institutions of American democracy were at risk. Yeah. I, I feel better this week about that, and I really care about that. Yeah. It matters to me. Right. And I get to say, you know, I, I, Boris was thrown out after a while right. because after a while it's like, yep, yeah. we get what you did for us, but, you know, you can't really govern the country and you're going to lose and you can't believe a word you say. Please leave. Yeah. Bolsonaro gets thrown out does not contest the results, partly because I'm told that lots of other, his allies actually did quite well yeah, in this right. election. And so they so wanted it's a complicated the, narrative. It's a, yeah. it's a slightly complicated narrative, yeah. but that's a good thing. Sure. Then you've got Maloney, you know, in Italy. And, uh, and well, she's, yeah, she's more of a populist right person. But again, yeah. she's also suddenly pro-Ukraine mm-hmm. and not wanting to leave the EU. Yeah. Rashid Sunuk, mm-hmm. as Joe Biden called it, right. Rashid Sunuk is a, is a very conventional Tory. Yeah. And for me, the most exciting news of the week is, is that maybe Twitter will collapse. I yeah. mean, wouldn't that, I mean, to get rid of Twitter and Trump in the same breath would yeah. be like, I, 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 it just feels so liberating. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I but I, actually, that's an interesting one. Uh, kind of thought experiment you know do i think which do i think will go away quicker the maga movement or twitter and i would i would put my money on twitter before the maga yeah. movement i mean i you know because we'll see i mean i'm gonna go back i mean here i've been in washington for the last few days good i'm gonna be hitting the road in a few days and i'll be going back into maga country and i'll and 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 you know i just finished doing a story in the panhandle area of, of north texas where when i was there as recently as a couple of months ago i mean it was trump was still president as far as they were concerned and and in arizona when i was there a couple of months ago, the same thing. I mean, I've, I've, I'm not ready to say that all those people will become a little bit dispirited, but ultimately just resigning themselves to the fact that, okay, Kevin McCarthy is now the leader of our party, him and Ron DeSantis, and we'll accept a kind of milk toast version. Robert, thank you so much. The book is Weapons of Mass Delusion. It is among the more granular, fun, reported, and I repeat that, <laughs> reported, God knows how many of us have, have, have pontificated about the events of January the 6th <laughs> and afterwards. But this is, is actually gleaned from talking and meeting and absorbing people. And Robert, I, I'll, I'll be all gushy. I, I, I just, I miss journalists like you. I'm so grateful you're still here. I know you're not going at things with some crazy agenda. I, I know you want to find out what actually is going on. And I know you, even if you disagree with these people, you don't dismiss them as human beings or as fellow citizens. And so in that tradition, in the tradition of the Texas, of Texas Monthly, I'm so grateful you exist and I hope you keep going. And I hope, I mean, presumably your next book is what happens now, right? Yeah. Or maybe, maybe you'll guess. go somewhere we'll else. See. I mean, this Trump story is not ending soon, but we will get some real denouement in the next two years. Oh, for sure. Like. Yeah. And I know I'm receptive to doing a book on that. But in any event, I mean, yeah, this would appear to be my current lot in life. And, I, and I'm very comfortable with it. I, I, I'd like to understand why people are the way they are, why they think the way they think, and why they're deluded when, when they're operating in a non-reality-based world. But I try not to judge people for that and, and I'm trying 
instead to understand. And in any event, I thank you for your kind comments. Well, you're welcome. But the, uh, the, 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 the only antidote to sort of delusional surreality is reporting and reporting that we can trust that we can tell that the author is, 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 is an honest broker. And that, unfortunately, increasingly that you see a lot of stuff that isn't like that. And, and, but some signs that some of that is coming back. I'll you know just recently the New York Times done two long, difficult, fascinating stories about the treatment of gender dysphoric children and, and got most of it right. <laughs> there are problems, there are issues, it's complicated, but Dismissing concerns about it is as stupid as as trying to stop what is, in fact, a, a reality of transgender kids and gender dysphoric kids. It's a complicated question, which our culture is beginning, maybe, to be able to sort out. That's how I feel about it in general. We're beginning yep. to come back to talk. Speaking of which, thank you so much for listening. We have a bunch of really stellar guests coming up. I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you, Robert, for coming in, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>